0: going to be hard to top last week's intro with the office clip.
1: Yeah, we have nothing, no new natural phenomena. What's up with you this week?
0: Not much actually, just the usual. Just I think the last few days and you know, we we've, we've always kind of I think not necessarily struggled, but we relied too much on digital communication for collaboration and updates. And it works in some capacities, but you know, we've started to do weekly editorial meetings in person. Mm-hmm. I have to, I have to address that in person. And it's definitely a lot more helpful to have all the ideas on the wall. Um, we have literally this white- on the wall. Yeah. We have this whiteboard paint that we, we have on the wall that allows us to just write on the walls. That's the one thing that's still a big issue when it comes to collaboration digitally. I think it's like there's nothing that beats face-to-face interaction, just that rapid-fire back and forth. But aside from that, like
1: Aside from that, my friend came back to you with even oh, more feedback.
0: You need you need to preface this, which started in the briefing.
1: It started actually with episode 7, which has just so this continued- is your friend. Yeah, this yeah. is my friend who ever since listening to episode 7 has been having a ongoing debate with Eugene through me. So just like sending me her comments and then Eugene responding to her through me. And there's been like a back and forth now. It's, it's in her court. The ball's in her court to respond to you. At oh, the so she
0: hasn't responded yet. She
1: hasn't responded okay. yet.
0: Anyways, um, we'll find a way to properly update that. But uh, after last week's show, I, you know what, I, would, I would say there's a sense of anxiety that came over me. I was like thinking to myself, man, I just realized that when you do this show, there has to be a level of thought that goes into everything when you're thinking on the fly. I mean, that sounds kind of an obvious, but it's, you know, when you, whenever you put something out there, like, especially when I was thinking, looking back on on the discussion we had about brand and what constitutes a good brand, what are the expectations? A lot of what I said, I I felt like wasn't necessarily relevant outside the sphere of fashion, but I don't think I particularly stated that. Mm -hmm. And that to me made me realize, Hey, you know what? You have to be, very on point with details. Otherwise, like I spent the, the the whole week basically pretending I was on the other side. And be like, oh, if I heard Eugene say this, how would I poke holes in his argument? <laughs> like, I literally was thinking that. And I'm like, oh man, like this is something. I think that it it forces me to think a little bit more intently, and like, and I think it even applies even today. Like, I was trying to get things to get. I was trying to make sure things were very clear. Yeah, you know. I um, think
1: what it teaches me is that you have to do the work outside of this podcast to clarify your thinking. It can't just be in like the hour that you're prepping for this, that Guilty you start solidifying
0: your notes. The better shows are the ones that have a bit more planning behind it. And, you know, since making is all about transparency, we usually put out, our last briefing goes out on-
1: Tuesday at night. Tuesday, at- Tuesday night,
0: 11 <laughs> p.m. Hong Kong time. Yeah. And then we record like 10 hours later, 9 a.m., yeah. 10 a.m., um, Wednesdays in Hong Kong. Oh,
1: that's the yeah. timeline that we've set up for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I prefer it to be like that. So then I have time to cut it and then try to get it out the door by Friday.
1: All right, dive into things?
0: Yeah, let's, okay. get, let's get going, Sheree. start us off.
1: So I want to talk about a pretty recent news item where Uber made a 125K donation to Black Girls Code.
0: 125,000 U.S.,
1: Yes, 125K US donation to Black Girls Code, and they turned it down. So just to give you some facts, Black Girls Code is a nonprofit organization based in Oakland, California that was started in 2011. It's founded by Kimberly Bryant, and it teaches technology skills to African-American girls. And they're currently based all across the states and I think in a couple of global locations as well. So the donation from Uber actually stems from an incident beginning in February involving Susan Fowler. And I don't think I want to talk about like that whole thing, but-
0: I think that started, I think that kicked off a lot of things. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Just to give some background as to why Uber was even donating money to Black Girls Code, it's because of Susan Fowler, who was a former Uber employee- wrote this really scathing blog post about her experience in Uber and the sexual harassment that she endured while she was there. This was kind of this watershed moment for a fight against sexism in Silicon Valley that eventually led up to 215 allegations of sexual harassment in Uber. And just this June, Travis Kalanick resigned as CEO. So... Um, Since the Fowler incident, Uber said, you know, we're going to do this intense diversity report and we are going to commit to donate $3 million over the next three years to organizations that support diversity in technology. And they picked Black Girls Code. Bryant turned it down because she felt that Uber was just doing it as a PR move, that it wasn't genuine, that there wasn't... That it was tone deaf.
0: It was more like, let's find someone that checks all the boxes and this happens to do it in several capacities. Is that, yeah. is that how you look yes, at exactly. it? Yes, exactly.
1: Like It looks good on paper, but she felt that they weren't really trying to spur real change. So the reason I picked this is because it reminded me of a conversation you and I had off the record. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Oh,
0: I remember it. But It was you, on the subway.
1: It was on the subway. It was on the MTR. Um, you asked me if I was a small business and my my small business is going to fold unless I take a uh, client that I disagree with. Is that the way you phrased it?
0: Yeah, basically what would happen if you had two choices to either go under as a business or to take on a less than ideal client that clashed with your sort of philosophical outlook?
1: Yeah, so it's either... Go out of business or get into bed with someone I don't agree with. And I was really quick to say no. I remember this as you were being slightly surprised at how quick I was to turn that down.
0: I think the reason why I was so surprised was that there's a lot more layers to it when it, when you start to integrate employees and people around you and the inherent benefit. So to give you kind of a worst case scenario, it's like, let's say you're a small team of 10 people. And this client is going to basically save your company or make sure you guys are comfortable and can grow. So if you don't get that job, 10 people are looking for a new job, right? And their families will arguably suffer for it as well. So that's why it's such a dilemma. But I would also argue in this case that Black Girls Code is not a one-to-one comparison.
1: Yeah, so I think that's fair. I was trying to figure out how much this 125K donation means to them. And I was attempting to do that by figuring out what their finances look like. And this was not like my objective to talk about this, but in the midst of that research, I discovered that they are not really transparent with their financials. And I, I, I want to be clear that from what I've read and what people are saying, they do good work. They're not they are genuinely teaching African American girls in inner cities about technology and coding. Yeah. But there is something about them as a nonprofit that strikes me as slightly odd. So just to clarify, um, most nonprofits make their, uh, tax filings public information. Yeah. And they can do this either through, um, you can request it and they'll give it to you, but actually most of them, like they'll make it available online like they'll let you see a whole PDF of their annual reports. And I checked their quote unquote competitor and Girls Who Code does a great job of this and I expected Black Girls Code to have that same information so that I could figure out like is 125k a big difference or not. But I found nothing. So I have no If,
0: if you guys know where to find this then feel free to send it to us.
1: Yeah, no, feel free like I checked um I checked where I no to check on Charity Navigator and GuideStar. But um, if you have that information, I would be really pleased to see it. Just because I wanted to know if the 125K is a big difference or not, which I think is what the argument hinges on. You know, like maybe it wasn't a big deal to turn it down.
0: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, I don't think it prevents anything from happening, but it does allow you to accelerate what you're trying to do. So that's the thing is like, at what speed are you going to execute?
1: Yeah, I think it's also... There are echoes of our WeTransfer conversation, but a different scope where the WeTransfer one was, how much does, was it 10K? Yes. How much can 10K take a startup in the early months of it? And this is, you know, how much does 125K affect a six-year-old nonprofit? We're not certain.
0: Do you believe that, a move like this solidifies the brand that is black girls code or like, what does this actually enable them to do going forward?
1: What's interesting about this news item is the allegiance their community showed. So after it became public knowledge that Bryant turned down the 125 K, she didn't ask for donations, but suddenly a flood of donations came in and fans of Black Girls Code started to say, hey, let's take them to 125K of our own regard. And they did that within two days. So this is a huge PR win for Black Girls Code, like unintentionally, this massive PR win.
0: For you, what is the the most important thing about this piece of news? Like, why did you choose this? Was it because it hinged on something we had discussed upon before?
1: Well, one, I think it's interesting to think about Having integrity when it comes to money, deciding for yourself, can I take money from someone that I don't agree with, regardless of how much money it is? And two, I think this is interesting to speak about brands because huge win for Black Girls Code and a whole misfire for Uber. Even if they had shady reasons for doing it, ostensibly they wanted to do a good thing. Right. Like they wanted to give no strings attached money to a nonprofit. Did not expect it to the nonprofit to turn them down and then to have a whole bunch of people support them for turning it down. Like that's kind of embarrassing.
0: Where do you if you were at the helm in terms of these programs at Uber, how would you actually make a difference? And this is kind of an interesting question because none of us are inherently in in a position, geographically speaking, to know exactly what's going on in people's minds. But for you knowing, you know, having done charity work, knowing how, you know, injections of cash like this can help, but also being familiar with the whole Susan Fowler thing, how would you approach this?
1: I think you're asking what the correct way to give. Yeah.
0: The long-winded, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, now you're just being extra careful with the details. Think about it. That's what I'm doing.
0: Can I jump in while you think?
1: Yeah, you can go ahead.
0: And it sounds weird because I am answering my own question, but I wonder how much dialogue occurred before this check was cut, like this proverbial check was cut. Was there a way for them to meet, link, and understand each other's challenges and find, you know, a suitable way of making things work? Rather than just like one day someone decides, hey, let's cut a check. Next day, hey, you've got mail. Here's a check for 125K. You know, maybe there should have been some dialogue going on. Beforehand, so there was a sense of sincerity in the action, right? And I think that's the biggest thing that some people lose sight of is that money is great. But at the end of the day, money with ill intent or that lacks a clear purpose or has purposes that are, you know, speculative. In this case, you know, like a PR push. I believe that is where things kind of fall apart.
1: Part of the reason this Uber donation tastes bad is because it's reactionary. It's trying to solve this problem that they have. This Susan Fowler started incident. So if we understand, if the public understands their donations in the light of the Fowler incident, they expect those donations to somehow address that problem. So, some of the backlash to the Black Girls Code donation, which I agree with, is that this is dodging the issue. The money should go to sexual harassment victims or more directly for programs that address that situation in work environments. And while encouraging you know, young girls, youth, to learn to code is great, that's not actually the problem that they that they're trying to fix using money.
0: So do you think that the way they approached it with $125,000 to provide to an organization was something that could have been broken up, could have been allocated and spread out accordingly, or is the actual amount irrelevant?
1: So I did briefly mention this earlier, but to expand on it, Uber has promised to give $3 million over these next three years to different initiatives and 125 K was just what they determined for black girls code. Mm -hmm. They've actually announced a 1.2 million grant to girls who code. And they took it and they took it. It's a New York based um, nonprofit founded in 2012. So there have been similar responses to the 1.2 mil even though Girls Who Code took it, there was still backlash from people who dislike Uber saying that Girls Who Code doesn't solve the problem either that Uber is trying to address. It's almost like I don't really know the right way they could spend three million dollars to like rectify the PR disaster that is their company right now
0: and I honestly can't say i know i can I can throw out ideas, but at the at the very core i don't think you and I fully understand what goes on, you know, and I say that because geographically we've never worked there. We don't live there. And it's more like all your education, all your knowledge is derived from whatever people tell you, whatever you read about.
1: But just to generalize, I wonder if a better way to fix this would be internal initiatives to spend money internally fixing the issue as opposed to Giving all that money to community, which while great, doesn't seem to be the best course of action for them. I think you kind of hit on this earlier that community giving should be something spontaneous or something, you know, a continued conversation over time, but not to fix a problem. Like something where you as a company earmark extra money that you guys have earned that year and say because we figured out internally what's going on with us we are capable of sharing our resources
0: so like a a multi-phase approach yeah yeah that makes sense
1: anything you want to add?
0: um no I think I, I got in my questions that you you answered do you have anything you want to add? I
1: mean the only there is one more topical reason to bring this up because Uber I don't know what this means either for the tech world but Uber just tapped their new CEO yes uh Dara last name can't pronounce from Expedia yes from Expedia and I don't know anything about him but I'm just gonna throw it in there that he's (laughs) inheriting a lot of problems and it'll be interesting to see if he can turn it around
0: yeah but maybe a change at the top is exactly what's needed and a new company culture will emerge from that
1: it will take some work
0: My topic this week continues the narrative of money and breaking down money talk between creatives and agencies. This was inspired by a podcast that I listened to called Two Bobs. It's a podcast by Blair Enns and David C. Baker. Both of them have a lot of experience in the agency world. They also do a lot of consulting in regards to improving organizational health and how to make things more efficient in an agency environment. And the podcast itself was an interesting format where I was talking about the truths and myths about money. So there are seven different statements about money and each one was sort of contextualized. Is it true or is it false? So some of I'll just quickly run through the seven different points.
1: Before we do that, so this episode is actually not new. And I was wondering why you wanted to pick it.
0: The reason I picked it was actually because I got put onto it And so like
1: that specific episode.
0: So my general podcasting tendency is if I get put onto a new podcast, I'll look at the whole list, Mm. what's been aired and I'll pick and choose things that I want to download. Okay. This just so happened to be an episode from, I think it was March. Yeah. March. And you know, it, it was enticing enough for me to download. And it was one of the first ones I listened to.
1: But I was wondering about why you were enticed by this specific one.
0: So the reason why I was enticed by this exact episode is because, and I'll, I'll guess I'm fast forwarding a bit because I had it in my in my in my own personal notes, but I think the reason why money is such an interesting thing for me is that it's the biggest struggle for any creatives. It's like, how do you make money off your efforts? Mm. How do you monetize it? And I think that's the biggest struggle I experience, not only for ourselves but for people I talk to. You know, okay. great photographers, illustrators. And all these people that might've been working in a traditional setup, like let's say a magazine, as soon as they go freelance, there isn't a lot of knowledge or understanding on how to monetize their efforts. So that's why I think it's particularly interesting. Okay. Um, you want to
1: go and say this? Sure. Of and, I'll, and I'll come
0: back. I'll come back to it after. Number one, impolite to talk about money. Number two, talking about money is stressful. Number three, avoiding money conversations causes the seller to overinvest in the sale. Number four, budget discussions and ranges change as you move up the decision-making ladder. So that means if you go from an employee to a manager to an executive. Number five, price is usually the deal breaker. Number six, the money you command is directly proportional to your self-esteem. And number seven, for me to have a dollar, someone else doesn't have a dollar.
1: Right. And I just want to reiterate the structure of this podcast was the two hosts saying if these were true or false statements. So not that these seven statements are true. It's that um, there was a discussion.
0: Yeah. And for me personally, like money has always been this, this really interesting vehicle. Like I totally understand what it represents, but previously I would say I was quite shielded from all the money talk, the numbers, everything. And that by virtue of that, I just Disconnected from it.
1: Previously, is, you mean in your previous job?
0: Correct, previous job. So it's more like, hey, focus on the editorial and creative side, and let the money be a focus of someone else, right? Um, Got it. And I think that now it's changed a bit. Like obviously, in a startup, as an and as a co-founder, you need to be one hundred percent hyper aware of the money situation. I would never say that I'm I'm uncomfortable with numbers, but it's another thing when You have to worry about the scenarios that exist yeah, and a lot of things that are both in and out of your control, right? The ones that are in your control are one thing, but out of your control, I mean, if someone doesn't pay you on time, they don't pay you on time. Like you can't always physically just rip that money out of their pocket, right?
1: (laughs) That's never a possibility. No,
0: you can hire people to do that. I'm sure.
1: Okay. Ignoring that. Um, (laughs) When you and Alex first started to discuss Macon. How did you educate yourself in terms of funding?
0: And just read a lot and you ask people. That's all you could really do. Ask people that have done it before. But even then, unless you have a base level of education, you're not going to ask the right questions. Okay. In the beginning, I think it's a little bit... Um, you have to do your due diligence. Like You have to come to the table with the right questions and the right point of view. And unless you know what you're talking about, or what you're trying to get out of the questions you're asking... I think you're just going to run around in circles.
1: So did you find any of these seven to be particularly true in your experience? Like you heard it and you were like, I completely identify with that one.
0: Um, No, actually, I I think it was, if that was the case, I probably wouldn't have found this as interesting. Okay, And I say that because there are a lot of things that were contextualized a certain way. Like, oh, you know what? That makes total sense. Like um, if I'm going to look over the ones, like the kind of, Ideas or concepts that I felt provided the most illumination for me. They were kind of the first few ones that discussed how money in a professional setting, when it comes to business, is not something you want to shy away from. Yeah, It's kind of like the longer you withhold the number, the deeper and deeper you get. And at the end of the day, if the money was never there, like the budget is so misaligned, then you've wasted everyone's time. Yeah, And I think you should start, I'm, you as a freelancer should know full well where like you get into these very in-depth conversations only realize, oh, you only have, you know, a few hundred bucks. I'm just making that up.
1: Yeah. 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 I have, I had a lot of learning to do when I first started freelancing and like you, I also read a lot, just trying to find other freelance designers experiences to g- guide me in my own way. So one thing that I feel like I have actually figured out is to get the money thing out in the open as soon as possible. And when they were talking about, you know, it should be like part of the first conversation. I really strive to make that true for myself.
0: Yeah. And some other ones, number four, budget discussions and ranges change as you move up the decision-making ladder. I think the one point they made that I'd never heard of, but from, from the sounds of it, it's pretty common knowledge is that employees are worried about the past, managers are worried about the present and executives are worried about the future. So who you speak to on that chain determines what the budget is.
1: How does this apply to you in a very slim team startup though?
0: I would say for us, we, we recognize, we have to recognize that if, let's make up a number, let's say 15% of your budget is going to go towards this one thing, but that 15% could allow you to grow sales you know, I think those are bets that you need to consider, but those are bets that I don't think anyone else would feel comfortable doing unless you were in our position.
1: Yeah. Because one thing that, um, one of the hosts said was executives will come into a situation and say, put as much money into it. That makes it right. Yeah. Except we don't really have that liberty.
0: Well, it's within reason it's relative, right? Like I think that, that it's still valid just because you're not a multinational with millions of dollars in budget doesn't mean you can't expect the same thing or have the same expectation or strive for the same goals. I think the other one, the other two was the importance of self-esteem. I mm-hmm. think humility in the sales game is something that I've probably been very guilty of. Like I'm just overly humble. Alex ways. is going
1: to listen to this and just be like nodding his head furiously. Yeah,
0: exactly. I actually sent this to Alex to listen to it. I don't know if he's listened to it yet. And they had some really interesting sort of, I don't know, just ways of explaining it through an equation where profit margin is a combination of motivation times ability and sales performance is motivation times ability times self-esteem. A lot of times your ability to be very confident in what you do allows you to seal the deal, to command a higher budget, et cetera.
1: Was this of particular interest to you because you feel like you are lacking in one of these and you really need to concentrate on one of these? I think I'm lacking in all seven. You, oh, no, no, no. I meant, okay, well, that's kind of the bag there. Yeah. But in terms of numbers, I don't know six, anything,
0: guys. I don't know anything.
1: <laughs> I actually just saw, slight tangent, I just saw this tweet about how If you're asked to be a speaker at a conference, you don't need to worry about being an expert. And I wanted to send that to you for you to just munch on. Because I remember once I asked you if you'd be interested in doing a TEDx event and you were like really concerned.
0: Well, you just don't want to embarrass yourself or you want to make sure people are deriving value from what you're saying, right?
1: I think you can give value without having to convey being an expert necessarily.
0: Then where, then where's the validity come from?
1: So one of the responses to the tweet that I found on point was, he said, you have to be articulate about your confusion.
0: Yeah. Which I think a lot
1: of things you don't know, Yeah, as you've just admitted on this podcast, and you just have to be really articulate about the things that you don't know.
0: And I really want to get good at them. Right. That's the one thing.
1: Sorry. So back to my question, which was specifically about that equation. Sales performance being motivation times ability times self esteem. Is there part of that that you feel like you are lacking? I think self esteem.
0: Self esteem. -esteem. I always I always crack this. So how are you going to fix that? I don't know. Look in the mirror and tell my tell myself that I'm great every day.
1: It's not going to work. I
0: don't know. But I think the the one takeaway from this point was. Confidence comes from deeply held beliefs, which I believe I have, and wait, wait, wait. no,
1: but you just said you don't because you said you have to tell yourself that you're great in the mirror every no, morning but
0: this is okay let me let me preface this. I'm confident in everything I do in terms of vision, in terms of what I want to achieve, but I struggle to cross that over into the real world. Does that make sense? No, because like I could tell you you know, in a certain, in certain settings, what I'm very passionate about. And I mm-hmm. think you would, you could rec- recognize it too. But there are certain settings when it comes to money, which I think this pertains to, is that I feel uncomfortable about, or just not good at. Because you okay. know what I mean? Like if, if, if you and I are in a conversation right now, I think that I have deeply held beliefs, right? And I think that that's kind of what drives our discussion. But when it comes to money, throw money into the equation.
1: No, no, no. But like the confidence that we are referring to in this point is deeply held beliefs about yourself, that you are good enough and that you are worth money. It's not deeply held beliefs about things in the world. It's deeply held beliefs about who you are.
0: I see it as you like slice it down. Like if you break it down like that, I mean, I was kind of all encapsulating, but that's a valid point too. I mean, if you don't, if
1: you don't think you can have those deeply held beliefs about yourself, the second track for you is to have options. Yeah. In this case, clients and a pipeline. Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that was the interesting thing too, is that options give you confidence as well. So having a full client load and money in the bank enables you to say no, enables you to ask for more money, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that the options part of it is what I'm probably better at in terms of creating more confidence. And the last one, number seven, for me to have a dollar, someone else doesn't have a dollar. I actually think this was the most impactful one. And I think this, if you can understand this one, it enables you to kind of spread it around for the other six points. And that was that working together, you know, in a client agency setting, whatever it may be, you're able to, you're hopefully there to create value for them. And if you're creating value for them, you shouldn't feel bad about getting paid for it. You know, you, In in many ways, you getting paid is a reward. It's a certificate of gratitude, as they put it. And you shouldn't feel guilty because you've made money, right? And I think that's the one thing that... I wouldn't say I necessarily felt guilty, but I I was always a little bit uncertain about how I should feel.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because Macon, as a current membership publication, there's one way to look at it where you could say... We take money out of people's pockets every month. And that would be this mindset where every dollar we have is a dollar they don't have. This podcast corrects that notion by saying, we're not taking their money and they have no money now. We are giving them something of value that they have deemed of even possibly greater value than what those actual dollars are.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that is something that when I listened to it, I was like, that's so simple, but it makes so much sense.
1: It's really, this is particularly hard to apply because some of these seven, I was listening to it and I know that they are practical. Like talking about money is stressful because you avoid talking about money, right? So the solution is just talk about money earlier with your clients. And that's a really actionable thing that I can do. You know, just always tell myself like, the second email with a client, you have to bring up the budget. But number seven, the tricky part is that it's your mindset towards everything. And there's no way to say, okay, everything. every time I think about money, don't think about it as taking dollars away from someone. Like that's much harder to apply in general.
0: Yeah. Did you find anything helpful from these seven points? Or, I mean, you probably working for yourself arguably for a longer period of time, you know, just being as a freelancer, you probably have more experience with this.
1: I would say I have more experience than you because I have to do this a lot. So I think you have maybe bigger situations with bigger sums of money related to making. But for me as a freelancer, I can apply these principles like every week because new clients find me on a, Weekly, monthly basis. And every time a new client comes to me, I have to have this money talk in my head and with them. Um, There were a couple that I had already read before. At this point, I'm going to plug this book called Design is a Job by Mike Montero. I first bought it when I started out freelancing in 2014, and they have a chapter on pricing design that I refer to maybe every three or four months. And there are a lot of things that he writes about which are the same from these seven. I think one that I'm not so good at that jumped out to me and you actually didn't linger on is price is usually just a tiebreaker. Um, The two hosts suggest that price and chemistry are tiebreakers in the sense that if there is another freelancer, the client is considering and we are of the same technical skill then the client is going to decide based off of our quotes or our chemistry, like how well we each individually get on with the client. And even though the hosts say like, this is the accepted situation. This is what the situation usually is. As freelancers and agencies, you don't want to concentrate on that because that means you don't think you can edge people out by being good. You think you can only edge people out by being charismatic or by being cheap. Yeah, And that should never... That should never be the case as a freelancer.
0: Yeah. I've never felt that for the work we create, that that was ever going to be an issue, Yeah, which is why I think I just glanced over it.
1: Yeah. Because that's not the situation you've set up for yourself where you're trying to, you're not trying to compete on anyone in price, right?
0: Yeah. I would say price is not something that we, we have a very clear series of numbers in our head that we know that we need this for it to be viable. And if it isn't, we're more than happy to refer friends.
1: Because for me, I'm aware of where I stand in a market of freelancers, Correct. like freelancers above and below me in price range. You don't think of Macon as our membership dollar amount is this, and the New York Times is this, and no, you know the information no. is... That's not a scenario I, I that you imagine. About-
0: it like that, I mean, you I, now that I see your, your argument, because it's more on the membership side and less on like the making studio agency side, although I would say generally they're about the same in terms of like how you position yourselves. Because if you try to position yourself as a unique product, and I mean, for me, if I want to have in-depth discussions about stuff happening in creative culture, and I want to hear about more in-depth stories for this sort of creative culture landscape. I don't know where else to go, right? And I ask a lot of people this question, not because I'm trying to plug Macon, I'm just genuinely curious. Like you're not going to the comment section of some website to have an in-depth conversation about something, you know what I mean? Like different industries have their media platforms that I think do a great job of fostering that dialogue, whether it's politics. I mean, politics can be a shit show, Yeah, but I think like, you know, if it comes down to like sports, if it comes down to technology. A lot of these topics are a bit more well represented in terms of in-depth discussion. Mm-hmm. But I still haven't found that cohesive place, which is why I think Macon currently, anyways, at at its membership price, you know, fifteen bucks a month, hundred fifty bucks a year, like there really isn't anything else out there.
1: Yeah, but you would never to tie it back into this money conversation even though you were aware of the cost of membership, you would never plug Macon as the cheapest place that you can talk about culture, right? Like you talk about all the unique aspects of Macon as a community and a publication. And that's what this podcast focused on, right? Like just even though you know what your value is, you don't sell yourself on that ticket. Yeah, Yeah. on that sticker price. Yeah,
0: well, I think it's also different just that we've hopefully created and fostered an opportunity that is just unique. And I think that's the thing is like, that sort of ties into one of the things that instills confidence too. It's like the way we've positioned ourselves, the belief side anyways.
1: We didn't plan this. We didn't, you know, talk about this beforehand. But the one out of the seven that struck me the hardest, like that I'm going to walk away remembering is also number seven. Because I do fall into this trap where I think about, I charge X amount of money for a logo design or a investor report or whatever it is I design. And I forget that those items actually have a great deal of value to my clients, probably exponentially more than what it costs them to pay me. But I think too much about, this is what my time is worth to me and not this is what this item actually is of value to them.
0: Correct, correct. Yeah, no, totally. That's the, the certificates of gratitude. I'll always remember that.
1: I actually just yesterday found out that a client that I did her investor deck for, like a pitch deck, raised the money with the deck. And part of me was thinking, I should have charged more money <laughs> because, because I know what that round was worth. And she won it. I mean, she won it in part because of the value of her business, but also because of the effort I put into Maybe that there's pitch. way you would know that though. I, mean, I know, yeah. but I just can't, I couldn't help myself for thinking about it that way.
0: So overall, I'm pretty excited to just like take stock of everything in regards to these seven points. I mean, I think it's almost a representation of how much I need to learn about things and just like redefine my relationship with money because for a long time, I've always tried my best to disconnect happiness with money this is kind of an aside, but when I first moved to Hong Kong, like I was so enamored by all the money that surrounded Hong Kong, nice cars, nice watches, blah, blah, blah. And then I soon realized like, that's not how I want to live my life. So I, I forced myself to disconnect, but now I realize, you know, the real value of money is it's allows you a lot of things, allows you to basically expand upon a vision. It allows you to sustain a team and it just really changes the speed and the scale of something, right? And these are things I need to fully wrap my head around. And I th- I would say that I didn't always have this belief, right? Maybe I would say it was probably something that came to mind only within the last half year. And even more so as like the business of making actually really starts to become much more serious. If there's one thing that really bothers me or gives me a lot of anxiety is not being good at things that I th- believe to be critically important. Like I can, I, I already feel myself starting to set up my personal philosophy on money a lot more differently. Okay. And I think that it'll be for the betterment of all things that surround making Cause like if you work for making. hopefully it'll mean job security. It'll mean, you know, maybe at some point in time it'll mean X, Y, Z benefits, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times people come up to the office and they're like, "Oh, I just quit my job and like, oh yeah, cool. What are you going to do?" "Oh, I'm going to freelance." And like, it's simultaneously scary and exciting. Right? Scary because where's the next paycheck coming from? Exciting because all of a sudden you control everything. You make the decisions, well, in terms of certain things, but you know, you are the boss of yourself.
1: I was thinking about the connection between our two items today. Black Girl's Code and the Two Bobs podcast. It's possible Kimberly Bryant thinks about money accurately, according to what we've been discussing for the past 20 minutes, because she decided that the actual value of that 125 k was much less. That's ultimately at the root of her decision, is mm-hmm. that the association with Uber was pos- possibly even negative dollars amount. It only just occurred to me because of how much we have been talking about. Yeah, anytime- Attitudes toward money.
0: Anytime you say no, it's because it's not valuable enough to you, right?
1: Yeah. It's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can head over to macon.com for more stories on creative culture.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is
1: Making It Up.